I really have no business being up here in front of you. I'm certainly not a biblical scholar. It's a bit of a stretch for me to grapple with today's scripture lessons. I am even less well-equipped to talk about Martin Luther King, whose birthday, it would have been his 90th this past Tuesday, uh, the nation observes tomorrow. Tomorrow we recognize his life given in the service of racial equality. No challenges I've experienced can compare to the inequities he faced and sought to overcome, and that still plague, plague our neighbors today. I'm a white woman working and living in a virtually all-white town. I'm not confronted with racism on even an occasional basis. I have no family circumstances that require me to deal with white supremacy in a direct way. News and stories of racial injustice horrify me, but they're not my lived experience. It's a recipe for a pretty severe case of white privilege, a term I'm getting to know and of our times that I'm only now beginning to understand. And because of it, I will beg in advance for your forgiveness for any way that what I say here shows insensitivity to any group that is or has been marginalized in our society. So what am I doing up here? Well, other than taking a bunch of your time, my husband says I was a little long this morning. Um, Whitney asked me, and while I have said no to her about other things, this time I didn't, what I'll share with you is the one area where the topic of racism and Dr. King's legacy and fight for equal rights and justice intersects with my experience, and this is the field that I work in. I work in the history business, uh, a term a mentor um, introduced me to some years ago. I work for a historic house museum. And yes, historic house museums and the like are a business and industry. I view it as sort of an awkward uh, mix of ac academics and tourism and entertainment. But yes, I have a job directly related to my college degree in history, and for those of you advising young folks what to do, take note, you can actually do something <laughs> with a history degree. One of the accepted truths in my field is that history is told by the victors, the winners, not the losers. It's told more often by the oppressors by the, than by the oppressed. So it's a lack in my education as well as a very poor reflection on me and my choices, that I haven't studied Dr. King's life or his writings or speeches in depth. But what I have read and heard suggests to me that, as Paul's epistle declares, people are indeed called. Something rises up out of their experience, education, home life, and culture that draws them in a direction where they will apply their unique gifts to serve a wider purpose, a common purpose, I think the term is used in our epistle, a purpose bigger than one's own self-interest. There are varieties of gifts, as Paul, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. It is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. 
Dr. King had quite a way with words. That was one of his gifts. Few people can listen to his I Have a Dream speech without being inspired. Those of you who have studied his life more than I have may be able to tell me about how and when he recognized his gift and found himself called to a life using it. More than that, he put his words into action. A favorite author of mine, a Protestant minister named Frederick Beekner, has a statement about vocation that I have pinned to a bulletin board at home. Here's what it says in a serious message lightened with a bit of humor. Vocation comes from the Latin vocare, to call. It means the work, is call, the work a person is called to by God. There are all different kinds of voices calling you to all different kinds of work, says Beekner, and the problem is to find out which is the voice of God rather than of society, say, or the superego or self-interest. By and large, he continues, a good rule for finding this out is this. The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work that, A, you need to do, and B, the world needs to have done. If you really get a kick out of your work, you're presumably met requirement A, work you need to do, but if your work is writing cigarette ads, the chances are you've missed requirement B, the work the world needs. On the other hand, if your work is being a doctor in a leper, leper colony, you have probably met requirement B, work the world needs done. But if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, the chances are you have not only bypassed A, the work you need to do, but probably aren't helping your patients much either. Beekner continues with this, neither the hair shirt nor the soft berth, as in a place to sit or rest, will do The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I I wanted to say it again just for my own benefit. The place God calls to you, you too, is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. In recent years, I have had the opportunity to see this statement at work in several places where I've spent time. One is in my paid job, I've explained that a little, and another is in the art world. A third is with a volunteer effort focused on civic engagement. Whether with one of these or all three, I don't recall, but last summer I found myself reading for the first time, I am ashamed to say, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. I have since read a small book by Dr. King called Why We Can't Wait. It's here and you can find it in the library once I return it. In it, he describes in detail the plans and meetings and conversations and actions that led to his being placed in jail, in solitary confinement, in April 1963. Note, as he did, that the peaceful protests in Birmingham, Alabama, of that April were just about exactly 100 years after President Lincoln issued the proclamation. Emancipation Proclamation. Nevertheless, he describes the city of Birmingham this way. If you had visited Birmingham before the 3rd of April in the 100th anniversary year of the Negro's emancipation, you might have come to a startling conclusion. You might have concluded that here was a city which had been trapped for decades in a Rip Van Winkle slumber. A city whose fathers had apparently never heard of Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, 
the Bill of Rights, the preamble to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, or the 1954 decision by the United States Supreme Court outlawing segregation in the public school. He describes the kind of life a child might have had if born into a black family there at that time, just 56 years ago. He describes segregated schools, laws permitting stores and restaurants to turn away black customers, white churches that didn't welcome blacks, and, quote, a general atmosphere of violence and brutality. He gives an example. From the year 1957 through January of 1963, while Birmingham was claiming that its Negroes were, quote, satisfied, 17 unsolved, unsolved, bombings of Negro churches and homes of civil rights leaders had occurred. Among Dr. King's examples in this book is that of the black child's voting rights. Quote, if you believed your history books and thought of America as a country whose governing officials, whether city, state, or nation, are selected by the governed, you would be swiftly disillusioned when you tried to exercise your right to register and vote. You would be confronted with every conceivable obstacle to taking that most important walk a Negro American can take today, the walk to the ballot box. In jail for organizing thousands to conduct lunch counter sit-ins and march with him unarmed through Birmingham's streets, Dr. King penned what I suspect has become one of the most well-read and studied documents of the civil rights movement. His letter from Birmingham jail uh, was, was written, started on the margins of a newspaper he was permitted to have with him. His letter is directed, it's important to note here, as we sit in a church today, to eight clergy men, remember the times, who had suggested in a, that newspaper I referenced that Dr. King's activism the sit-ins and marches he'd encouraged and led was somehow too much for the moment. The timing wasn't right. His response to them was this letter, which, while not intended to be spoken, rings with dignity and power as though they were. Let me conclude here with a stirring paragraph from that letter, words that are so much more eloquent than anything I possibly could say. They're certainly more authentic because, you see... Sadly, I am still more a person of words than action myself. Dr. King's words are relevant not only for the memorials tomorrow, but also for the topic of Paul's epistle, calling us to apply our gifts. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate, or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, 
the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Amen. Amen.